Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I own Strength Guild. I'm also a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, a bunch of other stuff. This is Dr. Mike Tenelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance. I coach people a little bit in person, primarily online, and faculty member at the Keurig Institute for Functional Neurology. Right on. Yeah. All right, everybody. We have a potpourri of stuff here. A lot of um, mail that will lead to discussion and some news after the break. Let's just get to that now. Um, we're going to talk about training philosophies and how ours have changed, if at all, over the years. So uh, let's wade through some of this mail here. This first one is from Rich. I've known Rich for years. Uh, this is sort of a concerned email. He says, um, hello. Uh, hope you and your family had a good uh, holiday weekend. This is back from Memorial Day. Uh, truly enjoyed the recent show with Dr. Steve Hertzler and the various topics covered. Specifically, I would like to follow up with him on his study with regards to the, the comment about 43% of patients that ended up with esophageal cancer after not getting treatment for heartburn. Uh, and he asked for some direct contact info. I just want to address this quickly. This is something we talk about in when I teach pathophysiology. Here's the gist of it, Rich. Um, if you have acid coming back up into your esophagus through your lower esophageal sphincter, uh, normally that's fairly tight. It keeps the acid in your stomach. Uh, and some people get re acid reflux, and there's a lot of um, loose rules in dietetics, I can tell you, about how to deal with that. It's actually frustrating for me because it's one of those topics where it's as tolerated. You know, like some people can eat hot peppers, not a problem. Some people can drink milk and it helps, and other people it bothers them more. I mean, there's all this weirdness, but what happens is your stomach, of course, is coated with mucus, and I know Rich knows this, whereas your esophagus is not. And what happens is the acid gets up in some of those normally flat squamous cells, and they start looking like columnar epithelium, like more like your stomach. So the cells sort of elongate, and they start looking like stomach cells, apparently in an attempt to resist the acid. Uh, so you can't bathe healthy tissues in acid all the time, and you know injury and insult like that, and not expect um, at least precancerous states, like ones called Barrett's dysplasia. Uh, they're sort of signposts on the way to cancer. So that's what Dr. Herstler was referring to. Uh, I can send you more info if you really want, Rich, but that's why it's important to control that stuff, right? Because you can't have that coming up into your esophagus. That's It's not just an inconvenience. Um, Mike, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? or? No, that sounds perfect. Oh, and okay. Have you seen much on people actually trying to increase stomach acidity to try to get around that a little bit which seems kind of counterintuitive uh no i haven't actually huh. i know that's one of the i guess sort of proposed mechanisms but i i haven't been able to thoroughly understand it yet i'm not saying it doesn't work i just haven't had a lot of time to go down that rabbit hole yet right now i will i, I know a lot of people they'll take antacids and that sort of thing but that carries its own i think partly to your point Low yeah. stomach acid has its own risks, right? You need yeah, that pH really the... low, like pH of 3 on a 14 scale, to kill bacteria and denature proteins for digestion. And so just popping antacids constantly, or some people will drink milk, like I said, and it will immediately neutralize some of the stomach acid. But then the protein content in the milk will then slowly stimulate more stomach acid, right? So... Um, yeah. yeah. That's just an informal test I do with people if they're having some digestion problems is just, you know, have a meal that may only be all carbohydrates, one that may be all fat and one that may be all just primarily protein, especially like a lean meat protein. And then just try to figure out which thing that they're having an issue with. You know, is it kind of like a whole macronutrient group or do you need to get a little bit more specific after that? Gotcha. Okay. So clinical stuff out of the way. Uh, 
I, let me uh, offer. If it sounds like I'm a little strained, I don't know why, but my recording levels are very low today, so I'm talking loudly at the mic. <laughs> I can't. I can't <laughs> figure out what the hell. Um, you know what? And let me offer this too. One of the things that was really hard to listen to a podcast is when one of the the guests or the host is very loud and everybody else is barely quiet and you're constantly cranking on your volume. If you do that with Iron Radio, I apologize, but I spend double the amount of time we do recording trying to even out the levels. So we do the best we can here. That's why I'm shouting. <laughs> okay. Um, this next is from Frank. Uh, and this is for all of us. Um, he says, hello, my name is Frank. I was wondering, you talk about doing slow cuts. If I'm in the double-digit percent fat range, uh, would it be okay for me to be more extreme with the calorie deficit? So I guess by more extreme, he needs more than maybe 500 to 700 calorie cut per day. I know none of us are a fan of counting every calorie because, you know, metabolism is so dynamic. It, it almost just bites you in the butt. It's a waste of time in some ways. Um, it says, uh, will I still run the risk of losing a lot of muscle? with extreme calorie deficits. I was thinking when I hit the low teens for percent fat, then I could slow the weight loss down. What do you think? Thanks. All right, Dr. Nelson, let's go with you. What do you have for Frank? Um, double digit fat percent, and he thinks he needs a more extreme calorie cut. Yeah, I guess it just depends on how high he is. I mean, I don't work with a, a lot of you know very obese people, but there is some research to show that in that population, you actually can be quite a bit more aggressive. Again, assuming you're doing it in a semi-intelligent manner, you're not just doing the master cleanse or whatever the crazy stuff is. Um, it doesn't really seem to you know, crush your metabolic rate or all this other kind of stuff. Um, the one thing I have noticed, though, with people who just tend to be a little bit too aggressive is that you know, it may be all right for a while, and you can just run that as long as it lasts. And then you may need a period of time just to kind of plateau and possibly go back up a little bit and then kind of come back down again. You know, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Um, but I think there's some you know, pretty good data now showing that you can be more aggressive if you're definitely on you know, the higher end for percentage of body fat that you're carrying. Yep. That's actually something I did myself recently is you know, I cut from 215 down to about 195, and I'm just holding it here for – I don't know how long. I wish we could tell people, you know, six months is the yeah. magic number, but people differ, and you're not going to find any solid answer in the literature, but I would think several months to a year, once you're about 10% under your usual body weight. Just rule of thumb, I guess. So, uh, Also, double-digit body fat, I wouldn't freak out about that, buddy. Um, you yeah, know, if you're 20% fat, where you're at. yeah, you're 18, 20, uh, that's a little on the high end, and I know it's you're not going to look you know, striated like that, but um, I think being in the teens for percent fat, like mid-teens, it's probably good for mass gain. Um, yeah, I, it also varies on what method you've used to do it, like, because I have a scale at home that does BIA, and it's, I had a DEXA probably six months ago, and the DEXA was like 12% higher. <laughs> oh, no, God, yes. If you're used to... Shit. Skin, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> right, absolutely. Every pixel shows up on a DEXA. The sad yeah. thing is the DEXA is probably the more accurate, you know, of a lot of the different techniques you might have the access to. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Phil, what do you think about uh, fat body fatness while gaining or extreme cuts? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that the double digit doesn't tell us a lot because 10 is double digit, so is 99. Yeah, so. agreed. <laughs> yeah. Let's pretend, it's a, let's pretend he's about 20. Yeah. You know, I was like assuming 20, mid-20s. Mid, even, you know, 16, 17%. I think it's been pushed out there too much. The whole, oh, you need to be 10% or whatever. Oh, yeah, there's a small percentage of the population that can pull that off. You know, and usually you're going to know if you're one of the genetic freaks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you look at, I think it's been years ago, so I can't remember the exact numbers, but they did a test of like Olympic powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters at the elite level. And they came back with like the numbers of here's the people that perform the best. And it was like high teens. You know, it wasn't people in their low, the low double digits. Good point. Yep. 
that we're doing the greatest athletically. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's your cup of tea. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you can get away with things when, when you're more, uh, a bit more obese, I guess, or to carry a higher body fat percentage. The thing is to be careful and don't do anything stupid, like Mike said, because yeah. the last thing you want to do is start off way too aggressive, and then where are you going to go? Yeah, can't progress. Yeah, You can't just go further. You can't keep, you know, I'm going to drop the 1,500 calories. Well, where are you going next? <laughs> so you gave yourself a <laughs> at the end, you know. So, yeah, you got to be careful not to start at the end and then have nowhere to go from there. Because like your metabolism it. will come down, and what are you going to do? Right. So. Start, yeah, don't start at the end. I like that. Good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can uh, tell you there's a rule of thumb in clinical nutrition that anything less than about 1,200 calories, and this is that's too low for a man, but that is sort of the basement. If you go below that, you literally can't even get the micronutrients that you need. Right. So, yeah. for example, you're like, oh, I didn't get any vitamin C. I'm going to have some mandarin oranges. No, you can't. You've already met your 1,200 calories, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Um, and that's like I've recently worked with the several female athletes that that's, we had to fix their metabolism because they had just lived so long too low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we need to take six months and eat more. <clears throat> so. Yeah. I would think to Mike's point, maybe. um Get yourself some kind of baseline. You know, you've got to get. Some, yeah. Like, are you a? Are you do a three day diet log? You can get on some free diet recorders. Like, there's actually a government one called My Plate uh, Supertracker and you can get on there and you can type in all your foods, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, whatever, and track yourself over time, and then get some numbers. Uh, most men for for a ballpark college age, like twenty something year old men. Around 3,000 calories a day is a typical intake. So, yeah, to uh, both, I think, Phil's and Mike's point, if you're down around 1,500 already, dude, you are already way down there. You might want to actually set up a diet plan and get your metabolism on its toes again, like Phil is saying, and, yeah. you know, for a couple of months. Tricky thing with that, I, I have people do that too. It's like, let me, let's find out where you're at. The problem with it is, is that most people, the minute they start tracking things, they change their diet. And they oh, yeah. are aware of it. I wish we need to start a service out there of like secret agents. Yeah. Just secretly follow people and write down what they're eating like without them knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Take pictures of what they're yeah. what's on their plate, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll call it like the diet creeper service. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, Mike yeah, wants to explicitly tell people I'm like, this is a three day dialogue. Do not try to impress me. Just the log what you're doing. I don't care where you're don't at. I don't care. Right. No, I know that they do anyway. You know. Yeah. So it's just human yeah. behavior. I was I was fussing about the diet project that I have students do in like the nutrition one oh one class and that's what I tell them. Okay. I'm not the nutrition police. I don't care. I don't care yeah. how well you eat or I don't care if your diet record says nothing, 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 and then at midnight, one large pizza, two pitchers of beer. Fine. I don't care. But you got to write it down to get a baseline, right? We have to be accurate. So, yeah. And that gets into all the morality, even at, you know, as young as some of the students are, that's already tied up in food, which is a whole separate discussion. Oh, right. You know, I should point out there is one, one situation where I always warn um, budding nutritionists not to have their clients record every calorie and every gram. And that's if, if you suspect an eating disorder oh, yeah. like anorexia, you don't want to pour gas on that flame. They're already Oof. hypersensitive and meticulous and perfectionist in many ways. Yeah, that is the time I would not do too much logging and monitoring. So, um, Okay, Mike, you said before I get into this, I, I mentioned last time that I would – talk about the weight loss trap which is a a little piece it was in time magazine uh, and i just want to briefly touch on it but first i'd like you to share you said you got a, a cool study you came across strength and muscle sport news yeah this is a very interesting study it's from uh 2006 nutrition and metabolism uh metabolic gene expression profile and circulating mononuclear cells reflects obesity associated metabolic inflexibility um, just the two parts that I thought were interesting on this is they were looking at what are cellular and genetic sort of regulators and differences at the cellular level between the two groups. And 
they also compared the groups with a uh, challenge meal of primarily fat and then also of carbohydrates. So they had a group that was lean, they had a group that was obese. And what's interesting is when they looked at the, the respiratory quotient, which is this little thing that tells you how much you're burning in terms of fat versus carbohydrates, the lean people after a high carbohydrate meal actually were able to upregulate and to use a fair amount of those carbohydrates as fuel. So we see their RQ go up. And the obese group, they barely bumped at all. Hmm. Right, So they were really unable to switch their body over to using those carbohydrates, which obviously is going to have a cost somewhere else if you're not burning them. They're basically in there mucking up the works everywhere else. Um, what was interesting in this particular group was that after the challenge meal for fat, uh, they didn't really see much of a difference between the lean group and the obese group. At least in this group, they both looked like they were able to use fat rather well. And what I thought was interesting about this too is that that's kind of something people know in the fitness world that's been around for a long time and there's, there's other supportive data in this realm too, is that you generally find that people are most sensitive to carbohydrates from one person to the next compared to fat and compared to protein, which is why you usually see that carbohydrate amounts for different plans tend to vary the most if you just grab a whole bunch across the, the spectrum. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And then they went on and looked at different possible genetic, you know, factors and PFK and a bunch of other monkey motion to, to see what may be the issue in it. Yeah. So sort of to your usual point about staying metabolically flexible, I guess, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I thought this was interesting because I'm biased in that direction. <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, we talked about that for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Cool. Um. All right, just quickly, I am going to cut to the end of this Time Magazine article. This is by Alexandra Sifferlin. It's the cover story, The Weight Loss Trap. Um, so there's a lot of these percentages and quotes in here, but uh, let me just cut to the main part. Exactly why weight loss can vary so much on different diets, right? So this talks about paleo, high carb, um, you know, all the different types of diets that have been looked at, you know, vegan, low fat, I mean, the whole run the gamut here, but uh, I think it sort of summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about on the show, but it says exactly why weight loss can vary so much between people, um, even on the same diet plan, still eludes scientists. Uh, now, that's partly true, because um, then they go on to almost debunk that statement, but um, it says the biggest open question in the field uh, is this individual response thing. Uh, I wish we knew the answer. Some speculate it's people's genetics, um, but then the argument against that, of course, it says over the past several hundred years, researchers, uh, well, the gene pool hasn't changed that much, right? Researchers have identified there's a hundred genetic markers that appear to be linked to obesity or overweight. Now, I'm always hesitant when I hear appears to be linked, right? That's not necessarily causal, but it says, but experts estimate that obesity-related genes account for just 3% of the differences in people's body sizes. Interesting, right? Mm. So uh, I think it might be higher than that. Um, I've, I've seen some work from Claude Bouchard, who's a very famous yeah. ex-phys geneticist, and it suggests bigger numbers than that. But um, in those same genes that predispose people to weight gain, Again, existed 30 years ago. They existed 100 years ago. So that it, that alone suggests that nature, you know, can't be the only uh, driver here. Another idea, again, to kind of look at these different things that scientists are looking at in individual responses to weight loss, is essentially exposure to chemicals, right? Bisphenol A, uh, phthalates, pesticide residues in foods. Things that have a, a hormonal or estrogenic, often uh, common mechanism, uh, could be something that's at play. Uh, it says chemical exposures are an important third factor in the origin of the obesity epidemic, says Dr. Leonardo uh, Trasand, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at New York University School of Medicine. Uh, and then finally, it says another frontier scientists are exploring now is the microbiome. And we predicted this years ago that this was going to get a ton of attention. Since then, I've gone to NIH workshops. Uh, we've talked about numerous studies, but uh, 
talks about the trillions of bacteria that live, of course, in your large intestines, your bowel. It says Dr. Iran Elinov uh, from Israel believes the variation in diet success may lie in the way people's microbiomes react to different foods. Uh, they, for example, they mentioned a, a blood glucose study they did with 800 men and women, and they found that blood sugar levels, and they, they use continuous blood glucose monitoring, like every five minutes. So that's a neat technique, and I'm waiting for the Fitbits to do this. Um, but they found blood sugar levels varied widely between people, uh, among people, after they ate, even when they ate the exact same meal. This suggests that umbrella nutrition recommendations for how people should eat could be meaningless. It was a major surprise to us, says Seagal. Um, in fact, they created an algorithm, and I think we touched on this uh, weeks ago, but they created an algorithm that could accurately predict a person's blood sugar response to a meal based on the types of bacteria in their gut. So we've got the xenoestrogen idea, or you know, these chemical exposures. We've got the gut microbiome that people are looking at. And then we've got a certain amount of genetic differences. Honestly, one of the quick and dirty ways to get to some of these things, with at least the genes and related whatnot, is your family history. You know, if you have people in your family that are type 2 diabetic or they're pre-diabetic, you yourself might be a poor carbohydrate metabolizer, maybe a lower carb diet. Uh, Mike was talking about targeting carbs more than fats and proteins, and I, I think Phil and I both agree with that. Um, but, you know, other people might actually do better on uh, lower fat diets because of their microbiome or their genetic makeup. So uh, uh, that's that's why monitoring comes into play and whatnot. Yeah, what's, what's interesting too in there, looking at, you can actually get a continuous glucose monitor now. It's approved in the U.S. via Abbott. It's the Freestyle Libre Pro, Libre Pro, but you have to get a physician right now to sign off on it which is kind of wacky, but it will give you a 14-day kind of running average of blood glucose. I think it samples like every 15 minutes or something like that. Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, back, God, 15 years ago, I had something, it was sort of a early stage called a Gluco watch. I had a couple of Gluco oh, watches yeah. and you would wear them. Yeah, and you would it would literally graph, a little line graph across the day, uh, similar to what you get with a Fitbit. Like I said, once they get that where those actually scratched your skin a little to get a little bit of interstitial fluid, once yep. they can do this with some sort of electrophoretic technique or somehow get the fluid up to the watch without scratching the shit out of you, <laughs> then <laughs> then I'll be more interested in that, right? But, um, yeah, I, I see that coming down the pike. So, um, I also mentioned on Twitter, I thought I would share this quickly, uh, my berry cobbler recipe. I was talking about berry cobbler. I'm not going to give you gory details. This is approximate. But I mentioned if you have a sweet tooth uh, or you feel like you need some carbs but you're on a diet, this might help. So here's what I do. I take a pan. I spray some Pam in there. I throw frozen berries in the bottom of it, blueberries or raspberries, mixed berries. Uh, if you like, you can sprinkle a little bit of uh, sweetener on top of it. And then I put... Uh, the batter that I make that I pour on top of this, I just take Bisquick, but then I put in some powder fiber. So usually, um, it depends on the size of the scoop, of course, but something like 8 or 10 grams of additional fiber, a lot of that soluble fiber, and research shows that soluble fiber can slow down the glycemic index of a meal, right, the blood sugar response. Uh, so I throw in some powdered fiber, like Fiber Sure. Uh, Benefiber, something along those lines. And I also throw in a scoop or a scoop and a half of whey protein just to put the protein in there. So the fiber and the protein help make it more filling. Uh, and yeah, it, it, you just pop it in like a toaster oven and literally like 15 minutes later, I take it out. It browns perfectly. If it's a little goopy in the middle, here's the secret. Individual pieces, you then pop in the microwave for one minute. And the microwave cooks from the inside out, right? So if it's a little battery and goopy in the middle because that, that little toaster oven browned just the surface, it fixes it. So you end up with this tasty whey berry fiber cobbler. Uh, it's not something I would diet on strictly, but my personal experience, and again, we talked about individual things just a minute ago, but I'll eat a piece of this for breakfast and I'm okay until late morning. You know, and I think it's the fiber and the protein that's helping out there. But plus, you get a bunch of those antioxidants, you know, from the berries and whatnot. And so, 
That's my Wayberry Cobbler recipe. Play around with it uh, yourself. Like I said, some Benefiber or your choice of powdered fiber, Bisquick, some berries, scoop away protein. Uh, play around with it. You got to get the consistency just right, right? The batter should be biscuit-like when you pour it or spoon it onto the berry, the bed of berries that you have in the bottom of the cake pan. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to the following people before we go to break and talk about training philosophy. Um, Joe, Kale, Joseph, Jeff, Jarrett, and Wyatt. Thank you for supporting the show. I'm trying to be a little bit more cognizant, right? So I just go down, and this is kind of random. If, you, if you're a supporting member, that $4 a month thing that you could do at ironradio.org, and I haven't mentioned your name, you can send me an email and say, hey, what about me? But this is pretty random. But I do appreciate these guys for helping us keep the lights on. So. All right. Having said that, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we're going to pry into Coach Stevens first, his, uh, his thoughts on training philosophy and how it's changed over the years. Hey, listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you, uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi everybody, we are back. Like Lonnie said before the break, we're going to talk about training philosophies and how they may or may not have changed over the years. Oh man, this uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, man, I I'd say a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't. Um, uh, for me, I mean, I guess the number one thing is I think this is a this happens for everybody over time. You tend to get more simplistic over time. Because you've basically you slowly try things and you throw out what doesn't work. But I mean, even as far as what what I prescribe for training, it's gotten a, a bit more simpler and more simple. And the fact that you you begin to realize that the big things work and the little things don't mean as much. Um, you know, meaning like if if I can just get somebody to squat a lot, then the little small assistance stuff doesn't mean quite as much mm -hmm. not that it's worthless i mean it means it means a lot but i mean it's not it's not near as much as the uh 
the bigger picture. Yeah. So I think just things have gotten, instead of having programs where, okay, here's the 72 different exercises you're doing today. You know, we might have three. And then over time, you know, and, and one of those is the most important. And that stays kind of constant. And those 72 little things that are now boiled into two or three kind of vary over time. You'll end up using all 72, but not at once. <laughs> yeah. And you see that problem early on. It's like, oh, so I heard I need to do good mornings. I heard I need to do stiff-legged deadlifts, and I need to do this, and I need to do Romanian deadlifts, and I need to, and everybody tries to do them all. You know, and it's, you don't need to do them all. Um, well, well, maybe you do, but it, over time. And, and also, I think I've become better. What's changed for me is going from a, a more of a long-term outlook. You know, now I, when I work, start working with an athlete, I'm definitely a long-term type person. I'm looking at years, not what we can create next week. Um, you know, my with, with my people, I'll tell them when they first come on with me, it's like I'm not looking to make you the elite athlete for next the next meet. I'm looking at what you have the potential to do over five years. You know, things like that. And that's, I mean, that's, it's comforting to, to get there. Now the hard part is getting the client on board with that. Uh, um, because usually they have a short-term outlook too. And so it's going from more that the blast mode to a long-term, let's not hurt you. Let's consistently get better. And I think you just make it further in the long run. Because no matter what, they're probably still going to be doing whatever it is in five years. So if we can get there without getting hurt, uh, you'll end up being in a better place. You'll end up making it further if you have that type of approach. Phil, how do you push really hard at at one beginning? Right, so. right. How do you get people to do that? Because I I imagine you have to sort of disabuse people of this notion that they get in the big box gym or the chain gym. You know, those places don't think about you years from now. They don't give a damn about yeah. that. So they come to you with this mentality from tabloids and, and big chain gyms. How do you get them to have that maturity to say, listen, this is a, a, a decade-long slow burn, not a blast f for a month? Well, what I like to do is set big goals, but then you teach them how to celebrate the little ones, you know, the little steps. Like, oh, you added five more pounds, you know, and it, teaching them that that's something. Especially once you get to a higher level. I mean, five pounds, maybe six months of training. Um, so luckily, I mean, the good thing with that is like all my people, we have such a variance in their level that a brand new person is able to train next to an elite level person so they can see how much time it's like, okay, yeah, this guy's been here. He's been trying to go from 760 to 770 for five months. And then they realize, oh, okay, you know, it takes time. And the hard part for new people is when, of course, they come in and they get those massive gains right from day one. And the first hurdle is when those slow. And they don't understand why. So, you know, well, I was hitting 10-pound PRs every day, you know, every week. And now, <laughs> you know, it's getting to realize that, they, yep, that's normal. You've made it. You're you're now through the easiest part. Yes. You know now you actually have to put work in. You know, and that's harder with some of my like seven to fourteen year olds. Mm. Harder to explain it to them, and they they can have a tendency to get a little uh, upset over it. Like I have like a little, I think he's ten years old. That we went from like a 110 clean and jerk to 140 and he's like man i'll be clean and jerk 300 next week and he's like no <laughs> <You won't." laughs> not linear <laughs> at this rate and uh you know and now everything's kind of plateaued out and uh it's just making them realize it's a long haul type of thing and i mean you still look across the board and most usually the best athletes out there the ones that are remembered usually aren't the ones that they came on the spot hot and burn out fast. It's those people that had long lasting careers and they slowly got better and better and better. Um, you see it a lot in strength sports even. I mean, I've seen it a lot now. You'll see these guys come on the powerlifting scene and they come out like, wow, man, he's 22 years old and he's hitting those numbers. Where is he going to be in five years? Yeah. And they've pushed things too fast. And the next thing you know, they got 17 injuries and they're done. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they never learn to slow down. And the neat thing is, is you can push them hard at the beginning. And then as a coach, you have to slow them down. Like I'm dealing that with, with Dal, who we've had on the show. He's gotten to the point. He's, he's so strong that we have to back off. He doesn't have the ability to recover from what we could do two years ago. You know, we can't push that kind of intensity and volume. Uh, you know, when you're when your seventy percent is over seven hundred pounds, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, six hundred and forty or whatever it is. That's a lot. You know, yeah. I can't push him to the same as somebody who's seventy percent is two hundred. Yeah, it's not just age, right? It's his capacity yeah. capacity to obliterate himself. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and and that's, you know, I I remember years ago when uh, I'm not bashing on Chad Waterbury, but he put out that like 10 sets of three at 80% and all the big power lifters are squatting eight, 900 pounds. They're like, yeah, not, not going to happen. Doesn't apply. I'm going to squat 750 for 10 sets of three. I'll give you one, you know? Yeah. Um, It's very, training has to be um, very individual and a lot of it's on your level. So I mean, I like taking a long-term outlook at everything, and just I get people to buy into the system, and a lot of times that's just oh, it's, it's talking to them over time, and making them realize that. And so, you know, Phil, one thing that you used to talk about, and I think you and I this happened to both of us, and maybe Mike, you too, but um, in the early stages of training, one of the things that's changed, I think, for me, and I think for you too, is it was a ridiculous self-destruction mode with volume and intensity and almost and you said before that you almost felt like you had to go through that like that period of self-abuse I think that's changed too right I think as you get older in your career like you said you value career longevity and you're not just out to for maximum destruction like the magazines would would tell you is good Mm -hmm. yeah my problem is and I'm still not sure I'm still I'm still trying to figure this out and test it out. I'm not totally bought that that's a bad thing to do that early on. Right. No, I agree with that, actually. Uh, and it's like all that dumb stuff and all that crazy intensity and volume built a really good base and, and taught us a lot of things. Now, you want to take the dumb things out of it as a coach. Like, wow, I really shouldn't have done that. Um, <laughs> like, I have this tendency not to do you know, any kind of exercise that's just inherently dangerous. You know, like, wow, the risk of injury is really high with that. But, you know, let's do overhead squat box jumps or something stupid. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I'm going to do that when, you know, I saw it on YouTube and uh, when we can essentially do the same move, same mechanics with something much safer. And so I, I lean toward the, the safest choices of exercises. But yeah, I mean, those early on, I think you can push push people with crazy amounts of volume and 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 things like that. And that's the hard part as a coach is, and I I see it with people all the time. They, especially coach athletes, they have this tendency to. It's working for me. It should work for you. And not oh, for sure. and they forget that I have to look back at what I was doing twenty years ago. You know, yeah. Not what I'm doing today when I'm dealing with somebody new. Right. You know. And even then, so, even then, individual differences, it just may not apply. You know, the gurus who do it, I do it like this, you should too. They don't even do any assessments or baseline, you know, data collection when somebody starts off. Uh, it's just stupid, you know. But uh, to your point about early stage, yeah, part of that intensity and volume is, was also, I agree, wasted movements. I can't tell you, early in bodybuilding, you you want to do every different exercise in the gym, every cable, every machine, every <laughs> everything, you know. And but you're right, I agree with that. Though it might be a, a requisite like maturational phase in your career where you do hit your hit muscles from weird angles, and you don't want to keep doing that because it's it's eighty percent waste. But it may be necessary to set the stage. That's a good point, you yeah. know. Yeah. I've even wondered about that just from a, a soft tissue fascial perspective that maybe you need to go through that phase, you know, mentally to kind of learn your own lessons. I always think of it as I don't think we can ever steer people away from that entirely, even if we tried really hard. But 
kind of like what Phil said too, maybe speed them through that area just a little bit safer, you know, kind of yeah. like putting the inflate the little uh, bumpers on the side of the bowling alley and kind of let them meander through, but don't get injured. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe they just, maybe they need that from a structural perspective to play around with different things to maybe get a little bit more soft tissue and different angles and that kind of thing to have more frontal stability when squatting or who knows, I don't know, mm-hmm. but it just, I've just seen that pretty much everybody goes through that phase. Even people who have really good coaching and go to a really good place. It just seems to be part of the process as far as I can tell. Yeah. I like that idea that if you could, if you could target while you're going through this, if you've got an experienced coach saying you're in this maturational phase on the timeline, go ahead and go crazy, you know, to some extent. But we're going to be looking at the meat and potatoes, identifying the meat and potatoes movements as we move along so you can eventually stop the nonsense <laughs> yeah. you know, or reduce yeah. it, you know. Well, I mean, you can't ignore the mental aspect of it either. I mean, yeah. one of the biggest differences in between now, again, I'm kind of speaking from a, an athlete perspective because that's mainly what I deal with. I do do some, some bodybuilding and figure stuff. But from an athlete perspective, especially a strength athlete perspective, um, you know, early on, I'm not a big fan of training to failure with like intermediate to elite elite athletes. But early on, I mean, I really think a lot of failure you see on a rep or this and that in the gym is is not as much physical as it is mental. Mm-hmm. You don't know your failure point until you've consistently pushed to it a few times, and really, you know. Because I see people like, oh, it's hard, boom, and they'll just give up. <laughs> take it to an elite level, and it's like they just don't. You know, they, they've reached this point mentally, and they know their body enough that um, when they fail, it's really failing. It's not just giving up. and They know how to push through to that next level. And that's some we have to safely teach them how to do that, too. Yeah, um, identify just tap into themselves yeah. and realize how much they can do. So, yeah, that's one thing I even still struggle with now, I think, is and I've gotten better with it is like even on a deadlift, for example, at what point do you know that you can safely strain sort of through it on a max attempt versus it's just not there and don't push it, you know, and that's a that's a super fine line. You know, you have like just a split second to decide too. yes, we, we had an episode years ago about the intangibles. Like things yeah. that are hard, it's almost the art involved. Yeah, and what's biological failure, neuromuscular versus psychological, and <laughs> and you know what is a, a fa- what is training to failure and that sort of stuff versus or when you're hurt, you know, and or you just don't have it. And there's times where, damn it, you just have to turn around and leave the gym at some point. You're like, yeah. I'm gonna, this is stupid, but boy, you can't use that as an excuse either. So yeah, some of that stuff is definitely. Uh, my mom used to say there are certain things in life you got to live through. You can't be told. And maybe that's one of those things that people have to, they just have to feel it, you know, sense it, whatever. But. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's something, especially if, you're, if your goal is to be great in strength sports, it is just a lesson you have to learn. Because there is a point that you are going to become, if you work hard enough, stay at it long enough, you are going to become strong enough to hurt yourself. For sure. You know, and it just happens. Yeah. And I mean... You know, and I've done it numerous times, but through that, I've become better at knowing, yep, better stop. If I keep going, I am <laughs> going to rip that off the bone, you know, yeah. <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> you know, so. It's almost disturbing, but that's so true. Yeah, there's, that's a, yeah, that's a simple is. truth. I mean, hey, Phil, but let me ask you is, not to sound sexist, because women are more resilient to tissue damage, but. Do you see women getting strong enough to pull a tendon off the bone too, or or less so? I see less injuries in that, but I also see. I mean, that's. Uh, I'm again. I'm not going to be sexist or anything. The biggest thing that I normally battle right away with women is just that. What we talked about earlier. It's teaching them how to turn on everything they got. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a big proponent of like bands and chains and stuff like that. But usually at some point early on in their training with me, I'll have I'll have my female population working against bands because it takes away the momentum on the bar and it teaches them how to push through the whole set. 
mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, yeah, the, because you know, they have a real tendency to, like, let's say we're squatting 95 pounds. They will literally give 96 pounds of pressure. Right. Yep. They will give just what it takes to get the job done, and they will do 798 reps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So instead, I teach them, we'll drop that down to, say, three reps, and now let's learn how to turn it on. You know, well, that's and, and actually something them. that's what I was going to suggest is I know exactly what you're saying. Here's a 10 pound dumbbell. So you'll get somebody applying 10.1 pounds of upward force to curl it sort of thing, as opposed to the idea of maximum dynamic effort. Right. It's not a heavy yes. bar, but you're dumping yeah. as much effort as you can into that for explosion or, or what have you. Right. Yeah. Well, and that feeds into like I'm a big I. I I agree with Ed Cohn 100%. Like, he he never trained speed work. He's like, speed work? Yeah, we did it every session. Mm-hmm. Basically, <laughs> you know, when he was, he was not trying to lift 900 pounds slowly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you have to learn that. I mean, it teaches you how to move heavyweights. If you can push a, a lighter weight fast, a submaximal weight quickly, that does feed into you know, heavier weights, you just learn how to turn more stuff on. When I'm deadlifting and squatting, I'm not trying to, to move it slow. I'm trying to move it as easy as possible. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I've often wondered, because just, you know, observing a lot of, you know, women lifting versus guys, it's almost like some guys I think would do better if they just chilled out a little bit more and worked on form first instead of going ape shit on the bar. And women, I think it's almost the opposite sometimes. And I've often wondered if that's just the mentality or the kind of a social construct, because it doesn't appear to be, as far as I can tell, anything different on a physiological level, or maybe we just don't have enough data there. Um, I don't know what your guys' thoughts on that are. No, I I think that's probably true. Is it is it something, are they just simply maybe smarter, um, slightly less aggressive, more efficient? Is it a social construct? Is it, you know... <laughs> prior athletic experience maybe in some ways yeah. you know in the kinds of sports that they did when they were young uh yeah i think that's true it's it's hard to tease that one apart for sure oh yeah, yeah. there's a lot of variables there for yeah. sure but. uh anything else mike i know you've commented a few times on things but what about oh. you things have changed in general with your philosophy for either for yourself or your clients yeah i I always think of like in general going through these what I call sort of expansion and then contraction phases, whether it's gathering of new information and then stripping stuff out or trying new different supplements and seeing what helps and then start pulling stuff out to see what still works. I think with training, I tend to do that. I'll try a bunch of new stuff and then see is the overall thing better and then just start pulling stuff out again and see how much of the effect you can keep instead of this sort of constant always expansion because your program's like 14 pages long then and no one can figure out what you're doing and I think at least for myself I found that allows me to explore different areas but then try to get back to okay what are the the main things that are that are driving it and the other part I've realized too is that as I've done that over the years my programs are actually just more simple like I don't use a lot of complex loading phases for the most part it's you know some variation of volume density and intensity you know if you trying to you know speed is usually pretty consistent you're just varying those you're probably getting you know 90 to 95 percent of the effect for most people um, in terms of overload and then just what is the individual's you know tolerance what do they like you know so my clients get a little tired of this, but at the end of each program, I'm like, all right, so what are the things you liked about the program? You know, what are the things you didn't like? And then is your goal the same? You know, and so I'll just, you know, try to program more of the things they like. You know, there may be some exercises they need to do that are not a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, trying to make sure that they like the whole um, process. And similar to what Phil said, the one one thing I don't like as much about online training is the clients in general are not lifting in an atmosphere that I control. So mm-hmm. they're getting exposed to all sorts of different things, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And just those, I think, expectations and, and timelines is much, a little bit harder to manage because you're not managing the main 
environment where they're getting them from, right? So like if you're in Phil's gym, there's very much a, a culture there of what's expected. You've got, like you said, experienced people, less experienced people. They can kind of see what's going on and they get that positive reinforcement where a lot of times, you know, clients are just lifting in, you know, whatever the local gym is. Uh, so that's harder to control from that standpoint. And then the other two things I think similar, you know, looking long-term and then realizing that the closer you're getting to your goal and the longer you've been working at it, the more non-linear your approach is probably going to be, you know, so like, you know, the main two goals I'm working on is, you know, lifting the Thomas inch dumbbell and then doing the Denny stones. So Denny stone stuff I've probably been working on for about six years now, eh, five or five, but I spent about the past year just trying to widen my stance out. And when I went back to a wider stance now, yeah, you know, weight's probably about 50 pounds off my max. But the cool part was my the physics of the lift are much better. I can support load in that phase. Hey, and my low back doesn't hurt because I'm not flexing as much for my low back. Where if I would have stayed with the same form, you know, that did well up to that point, I'm sure I would have plateaued out well before I got to the actual goal. But it was hard to take almost, in, in this case, it was almost a year just to be able to do other work, to you know, kind of go back down, work on a different stance, and to be able to do that knowing that it'll be much better in the future, right? It's like how, you know, are you mentally okay taking steps backwards to get to the larger goal? And I think that can be really hard for a lot of people, right? Especially when what you've been doing has been, you know, rather successful. Um, but I think if you're looking at it long term and realizing that it's going to be a nonlinear process, uh, it makes that a, a little bit easier. Yeah. yeah, I you know I like your point about modeling. Like if they have no one to mimic or model, um, yeah. they're by themselves. That's something I did a lot when I was young, and I almost never do now. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's arrogance on my behalf that I don't do that. Right? I maybe pick someone who I think is similar in physique or whatnot. Um, there is one thing. In in one sense, it's almost been full circle for me. Uh, I started just again trying every machine and free weight movement in the gym. It's funny, as my, uh, basically my osteoarthritis has taken a toll, I'm almost coming back to higher volumes, more variety, you know, whereas there was definitely a time in my career where everything was heavy, eccentric, like five basic lifts, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I did so much maximum, like I, you know, tissue assassin, you know, did as much yeah. soreness as possible, but now I, I remember watching it, again with the modeling concept. We used to watch body shaping, and uh, there was oh, yeah. Valente and Kiana. I think was her name, the Asian girl. I can't remember her last name. Uh, but my brother and I used to watch it, and I'd be like, "How is he so jacked?" Now, I think there were performance enhancing drugs at work, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he would do like sets of everything was sets of twenty. And isn't it funny, yeah. like, some of the stuff that's come out of, you know, um, Stu's group or Nick Bird and those guys talking about, like, 23 reps, you can still kick up protein synthesis very nicely. And in some ways, that's a godsend for me now because I am not going to pile. I just don't squat 405 for reps or sets anymore. That's not going to excite the powerlifters, but uh, I have to – I have to push myself in different ways, so, you know, in that kind of sense. But uh, well, I think over time you learn to get more – out of even an exercise at lower weight than you could early on. That's that's true. I think that's so true, yeah. man. Yep, absolutely. It was one thing Mike touched on that's big is at some point as a coach, you need to have a belief. You need to find and define a belief system. Mm -hmm. And only then can you test that belief system. You know, okay, I'm going to throw this thing in there now, and we'll see how it works against my beliefs. And then, you know, I mean, I'm constantly trying stuff. I think if you quit trying stuff and you're just, I'm here, this is me, yeah. you're done. You, know? yep. <laughs> you need to keep trying things forever. And I mean, I'm constantly learning more and my uh, it'll constantly change what yeah. I'm doing. And the funny thing is, is it may change for just a, a subsect of people. Like, oh, this, you know, beginning group needs to do more of this. Whereas the elite side, yeah, not so much, you know, yeah. and things like that or. 
But uh, you know, I hear you, you have that core belief system before you can even test that core belief. System. Right. You know what? Martial arts is like that a lot. Like you choose a school or a system, and in the beginning, that's just how you do things, right? But yeah. it, it is that it's it's like that old Zen quote: "Stop all your bargaining and just get with a program." You know. Yes. Then once, you, like, let's say, let's pretend that it's it's the Phil Stevens martial arts school instead of lifting gym. Uh, you have a certain system that you follow, and yes, the the instructors and the mentors they grow and change from that base if they're smart. You know, they're not completely closed minded, but at least when they come to your gym, they know some of the basic tenets and principles that you're going to expect. Yes, you know, and, and that's that's helpful, I think. Well, I think maybe the last thing too is just learning that you know, number one, with a client, you know. It's it's no matter what you want for them, you have to give you you, you have to give them what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, lead them where they want to go. Like if I have a freaking five hundred pound person come in that says they want to be a marathon runner, well, okay, let's do that because that's what you want to do. Or or I get somebody on a different note. Let's say I get somebody to come in that's just genetically predisposed to be a weightlifter, and they want to be a distance runner. Well, it's my job to make them what they want. You know, yeah. now I'm going to hint at them and say, yeah, you should try this because you're really built for it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but if, if in the end they hate that and they really love this running thing, even though they're just not built for it, well, okay, we're going to make you a runner. You know, and I'll do the best I can, you know. so We actually, and that's, just and, as an analogy of that, we, we remodeled our kitchen a few years ago and the interior designer, she kept wanting to make it her kitchen. And Kelly's like, this is my freaking kitchen. You're going to do X, Y, and Z, you know. Uh, and it was that sort of couldn't suppress. So it, you're right. That's the flip side, I think, of when you walk into a school or a gym and they have certain principles they follow. Yeah, you can't be so rigid that you're trying to make everybody Phil Stevens. Yes. You know, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, on a different note, it's just realizing that I'll have people come in that are just, uh, let's say, genetic freaks. And just don't have the drive, mm-hmm. and no matter how much I want them to, they don't have it, <laughs> you know, mentally or whatever it is. Yeah, and it's becoming okay with that, and you can't take it personal. It's their, it's their fault. It it's seems not like your, a waste. Yeah, and and realize, move on. We'll just make them what they can, and if they're happy with that, fine. You know, even though you know they could do so much more. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, one of the tips I got from uh, Frankie Ferries is uh, related to sort of what they want is a lot of times on a new program, I'll ask them, I said, what, you know, one exercise do you believe is most responsible for your current results? And if they tell me it's, you know, standing on a BOSU ball doing, you know, one arm pink dumbbell curls, the weird and stupid as I think that is, or maybe the uh, overhead box jumps, I'm going to use that one now. Um, it's probably going to be in their program, right? Because if I don't put it in there, they're thinking, well, who's this idiot I hired? I told him that this is like the number one thing that I think is getting me results and they didn't put it in my program. You know, and over time, I'm hopefully going to do, you know, less and less of of that type of thing. Um, But I think a lot of it is just getting the psychological, you know, buy-in that, you're listening to them and that they understand that you're doing this, you know, for their best interest. You're not trying to put your goals on top of them, you know, so that they buy into the program. So therefore they execute the program. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with diet. If somebody like comes in and firmly yeah. believes eating raw mint leaves has made them jacked. Yeah. <laughs> no use. You're wasting your time trying to convince them. It's not just let them keep eating the raw mint leaves. Yeah. You know, because it, even if it's, you know, just psychological, they believe it. so And that's a good thing. Belief is huge. You know, and that's one thing I try and talk to my people. I mean, you have to believe that you can do this before you can do it. Yeah. We need to reach that point to where you're not doubting when you're coming up to an event or, you know, that you just fully believe, I'm going to do this. And then you probably will. You know, if mm-hmm. you're doubting it all the time, you're probably going to suck. You know? Yeah. So well, I'm kind of disappointed. I, I feel like I need to pull the pink dumbbells and BOSU balls and mint leaves out of my training <laughs> program now. Crap. <laughs> Let me. I'm just going to offer something. We've all been sort of sharing this stuff. But one of the things that's been, I guess, an epiphany for me 
and it took me years to realize it is almost to your point phil about nutrition the training principles oh my god how they apply to diet let me give you some examples oh, here yeah. specificity versus variety right for example if you eat all carbs you become a better carbohydrate metabolizer but you can't just do that so there's that specificity principle there's the variety what about reversibility the use it or lose it god that's true you, your body will start adapting away from the stimulus when you stop the stimulus you know diminishing returns like we talked about that's another training principle that's also true with diet right like we're talking about progression models you can't expect enormous progress linearly forever You're, there's going to be a, re, a reduction in the amount of returns you got to be okay with that right individual differences right your guru may not apply to you so many of these training principles they so well apply to diet too and if you think about it it's just human human adaptation you know whether the stimulus is a resistance training with barbell or whether it's uh, the kind of food that you're swallowing so many of these things uh, hold true across you know those two seemingly disparate things you know the dinner plate versus the barbell uh, so yeah and that's why i love like certain principles right so even to expand on that too like if you look at overload right we can look at volume right so weight times sets times reps uh for nutrition we can look at the the volume of food you know that's contained now you can look at density right so volume divided by time with food you could do volume divided by calories yeah. Right, broccoli exactly. is going to be a very different density than a donut. Yeah, you know, and just the intensity, right? How fast do you eat your food, and yeah, so all those concepts I love are, you know, applied across you know multiple different domains. For sure, yeah. I think I focus too much on what I would call the intensity factor early in my yeah. career. All literally half my training was like 120% of my one rep max doing negatives <laughs> with a partner, you know, and then on the dinner plate, it was, I don't know, 2000 calorie meals, <laughs> you know, yeah. just ridiculous um, excess kind of thing, as opposed to appreciating some of these other truths in a way, but all yeah. right. Last comment I had, what you were saying too, Lonnie, about pain is that, especially over the past couple of years, I've realized that I don't like being in pain. <laughs> I actually don't want to be in pain. Being I, bad. <laughs> I like getting up in the morning and not having to do 40 things so I can move around. I like just getting up out of bed and going for a walk, you know. So I realized that I think it probably took me several years to, to consciously be aware of this, that I'm probably not going to maybe push as hard for certain goals if I think it's going to be painful or risk injury or things of that nature. Yeah. And when I do start kind of overstepping that and I feel kind of sore in the morning, especially more joint soreness, not just muscle soreness, that kind of thing, that I'm probably going to change it a lot faster now. And so I, you get then you get into the psychology of, oh, well, am I probably more health orientated now than even performance? You yeah. Know? And so it's... It, where, you know, 20 years ago, I'd be like, ah, it doesn't matter. I don't care how sore I am. Ah, this hurts, that hurts. You know, as long as I'm making progress, I'm I'm good with it. And now I'm just I have almost like zero tolerance for it. Right. It's almost Buddhist, that sort of middle path. And you have to live through it, I think, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. You know, like a 45-year-old body just doesn't like that sort of pain and soreness like a 25-year-old body does necessarily. Yeah. You know, yeah, for sure. And you have the lessons that are associated with it, right? Because every time I look back on the stupid stuff that I did, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, my little back was sore for quite a while. I had three cups of coffee and thought, you know, this exercise would be great on four hours of sleep, and I tweaked my back. Oh, hmm, okay, that was pretty dumb. Right. But at the time, for whatever reason, I thought it would be okay. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yep. Yep. All right, fellas, that's good stuff. It's fun to talk about training philosophy. We do it with our guests all the time. So, you know, I guess listeners, some maybe there's some tips you can get from the old guys, you know, that have been training yeah. for three <laughs> decades or more. Yeah, and where things evolve. So, okay, good stuff. Uh, uh, we'll catch up with everyone next week, I guess. Sounds good. See you.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.